You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the philosophy, technology, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today, I'm joined by Zandria Robinson to talk about Black Museum, the sixth and final episode of season four of Black Mirror, which premiered in 2017. Dr. Zandria F. Robinson is a writer, urban ethnographer, and music scholar working at the intersections of race, gender, popular culture, and the U.S. South. She's the author of This Ain't Chicago, Race, Class, and Regional Identity in the Post-Soul South, and co-author of Chocolate Cities, The Black Map of American Life, which she co-authored with her longtime collaborator, Marcus Anthony Hunter. Her cultural and music criticism has appeared in Rolling Stone, Scalawag, Hyperallergic, Believer, Oxford American, The New York Times Magazine, NPR.org, and The Atlantic. Robinson is currently an associate professor of African-American studies at Georgetown University, and she's the president of the Association of Black Sociologists. She blogs at New South Negress and tweets sporadically at Z Felice. Now, Zandri and I go back a minute. We're both from Memphis. We both love this city of endless lol cries, and we both appreciate the larger, more complicated, heartbreaking, maddening, and beautiful body as resides the American South. And I've been a longtime fan of Zandria's thinking and writing and an even bigger fan of her person. She is a BAMF, and I could not be happier to have her on the podcast today to talk about Black Museum. So welcome, Zandria. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. I am so glad to be here right back at you. I am such a fan of read more, write more, think more. Do more, be more, have more. I'm I'm such a fan of the blog. I'm such a fan of your badassery um, in philosophy on the Memphis music scene, documenting and and beyond just all around badassery. So very appreciative to be here and a follower of your teachings on Black Mirror and responses, (laughs) like White white Bear Day in class and what's going to happen. So I'm, I'm, I'm just thankful to be here. All right. So let's jump right in. So you know this already, but I ask the guest at the beginning of every episode to summarize the episode that we're going to talk about. So can you summarize Black Museum? So Black Museum is the final episode in season three, I believe. And it is a frame story like the previous season's ending episode, White Christmas. In this frame, You know, we have two characters, a main narrator and a listener. This time our main narrator, our Rolo Haynes, a um, disgraced tech guy who runs the Black Museum. That is the subject, the titular subject. And there is Nish, who is seemingly a traveler on the road, charging her car up and coming to see the museum while she waits. These three stories that ensue that Haynes tells Nish include one where there is a doctor who uh, becomes extraordinarily addicted to pain and with some terrible consequences made possible by technologies that Rolo Haynes is part of peddling to folks. Uh, The second story is a Love story gone wrong for Jack and Carrie, who, when Carrie is killed, incidentally, by 
um, stepping out into the street and not looking and getting hit violently with a van because she's on her phone trying to take a picture of their new child. When Carrie dies, Carrie's um, consciousness is implanted into Jack with some difficult consequences as well. And then finally, the (laughs) final story is um, one that involves a man who is sentenced to death under dubious circumstances, as all death sentences are, as the death sentence is invalid and wrong. And his consciousness is resurrected through strange and violent technologies so that he is the main attraction in this black museum and Nish has something to say about that. Are we doing spoilers in the, in the summary? I can do a spoiler in the summary. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, I, let me just go ahead and say for the listeners who should know this by already, but there will be spoilers in this uh, episode, but yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So spoiler alert, Nish is Clayton Lee, who is the person who uh, received the death penalty and his consciousness is uploaded to a hologram of him. And so many people can come and just electrocute him over and over. Nish is his daughter and she's come for revenge. She's come to shut the museum down and she's come to set the record straight and murder Rollo Haynes and blow up the black museum. (laughs) (laughs) Go Nish. Hashtag Nish. Tag Nish and with it, team, team Nish, team Nish, and with it, all of the criminological artifacts, um, technological artifacts, and we see all kinds of artifacts from um, previous episodes. So this episode really does function as a museum sort of contained within the episode, but a museum of an archive of Black Mirror up to that point. And so all of that gets destroyed, which is kind of interesting when you think about where the next season goes. It's kind of a restart season four in some, in some ways, even though it's continuing on with some of the same themes and technologies is different. So everything gets burned down. Um, in this space. I read somewhere and someone else told me that Charlie Brooker had originally intended for all of the Black Mirror episodes to exist in a single universe. And clearly this was kind of a episode that was really trying to show that that was the case. Brooker is trafficking in in types and archetypes and ideas. And you cannot fundamentally keep these ideas in some ways, these archetypes in the same universe, because they're not fleshed out enough in some ways, because that's not the point. The point is for us to be able to map on our own experiences to these different themes and subjects. And that's what's interesting about this episode to me in particular, is that it's all about consciousness and what we think about consciousness Mm -hmm. and what we think about whether or not consciousness has the kind of sentience or if we can make it have the kind of sentience to be movable and separated from the body. Uh, All I'm thinking is stop with the Descartes all all the time. (laughs) Stop. Stop it. Because there's this whole, there's the mind-body dualism. There's a mind-body problem um, that kind of goes with all of these and it asks us to think about whether or not um, we believe that consciousness uh, can feel, whether we believe consciousness, disembodied consciousness has rights or all these kinds of questions. It's it's interesting that you you say disembodied consciousness because I do think one of the kind of 
Well, so from the philosophy side, one of the really interesting questions about consciousness is whether like consciousness has to be embodied. And certainly human consciousness, as we understand it, has to be embodied. And and in this episode, there is no disembodied consciousness. It's always kind of re-embodied consciousness, you know, sort of consciousness taken from one body and put into another body. I mean, in this episode, interestingly, one of those bodies is like a stuffed teddy bear, you know. Uh, it does seem clear that consciousness has to be in a body to be, like, animated and sentient. In something, because, I like, the teddy bear is, is an object but not a body. The hologram is a facsimile of the body but not a body. And certainly um, in the case of Carrie, who lives in her former boyfriend's baby daddy's consciousness, she yeah. is inside of the body and she is experiencing the sensations but she literally has no power beyond her voice to make him do anything so she has to rely on the power of persuasion like she can't move his arm i think a lot about um in this episode versus like being john malkovich where in being john malkovich john Cusack's character is able to eventually control the body that is John Malkovich and he can not only um, control this body but he can, his own affect comes to inhabit this body or in in Get Out, right? The there's control on the end, like that that entity can control but these people are observers, Except yeah. for in the case of Clay and Lee, in which case we're looking at a hologram, but the show wants us to uh, believe that in this case, the consciousness is embodied in this hologram and can feel and therefore can be broken, which is eventually what happens as Rolo Haynes allows people to uh, use the electric juice more than the allotted amount of time. And then essentially Clayton Lee's hologram, which we are to believe is his body, becomes um, unresponsive, unable to recognize, unable to see. So a hologram whose body has been broken to the point, but, but cannot be destroyed unless there's so much, so much juice. That's such a good point. I, I, I had maybe skipped too quickly over the fact that Clayton Lee is Clayton Lee's consciousness at the moment of his death in the electric chair is transferred to a hologram. Right. Uh, so it's weird to talk about the fact that Clayton Lee can experience sentience suffering right when he doesn't have a body uh but this may be i mean i don't know how you want to do this there are really three different stories in this episode and maybe we can just kind of take them in a row it occurs to me that maybe one question that we could ask to kind of get us back to the first story that's told which is about dr dawson is you know why are these technologies being developed in the first place and part of the motivation for developing these technologies is to be able to transfer the experience of one mind to the experience of another. And, you know, they start with the experience of pain. It, it turns out in the episode that this is a kind of accidental discovery, that they were trying to transfer the knowledge of one mind to the knowledge of another mind using mice and let you know, put one mouse in a maze, let it run around till it learns the maze, and then try to transfer that to a mouse that has never been in the maze. 
But what they accidentally discover is that they can't transfer knowledge, but they can transfer experience, um, sentience. So yeah, why don't we talk about that first kind of subplot first? Yeah, to me, like this whole, that subplot is the failure of STEM. The whole thing about Rolo Haynes, right, is that Because I remember when this episode came out, people being like, oh, uh, Charlie Brooker's boiling this down all to it being the fault of one man. No, 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 no. Rollo Uh Haynes is a metaphor, is a a stand-in. He is capitalism. He is white supremacy. He is patriarchy. And it will be gross (laughs) embodied in this this way. This is is who he is. And so this particular technology is one that supposedly, right, the scientists without humanities uh, training thing, <laughs> it supposedly uh, allows Dr. Dawson to feel the symptoms of a patient. One of the interesting things that it's, it's admitting is that medical science is wildly inaccurate and based on all kinds of assumptions. Here's a technology to intervene in our human inability to do X, Y, or Z thing. But we have said that medicine is this kind of uh, uber science um, rather than an inexact whatever, whatever the fuck full, full of biases and whatever. And so the idea is that Dr. Dawson will be able to understand what's going on in a person's body by putting on a, a node that is installed behind his ear. We will uh, be reminded of his similarity to the grain or the cookie that is in other episodes. And so then what happens is is if he puts this kind of hairnet, electrified hairnet on a person, those two things can communicate with each other. And then the mind of that person, or he can actually feel what's going on in that person's body. So here again is the body's knowledge again. Like this is about, the. it's not what's, what the person's thinking, the person's not thinking my hip hurts, the hip is just hurting or whatever the case is. Or the person's not thinking I'm having a heart attack. He feels the sensation of the body. And that is what allows him to be like, this is what it is. So of course it goes okay for a little while and he's able to sort of really get his diagnoses right and so forth and so on. And again, this is one of those things where I'm like, If we believe in this technology, do we believe it's so easy to understand that this symptom in this body or this sensation means this thing for each person, right? He's Mm -hmm. kind of going in there with the textbook. He's like, oh, it feels like this. It must be this. Um, Mm -hmm. And so then it goes wrong, that technology, when a person flatlines on him and he experiences death and he experiences the rush of death. And that rush of death without him actually dying has short-circuited or rewired uh, the technology, the grainish type thing that he has implanted. And in that case, what we see from there is like his pain and pleasure receptors, which is such a white patriarchal, (laughs) I was like, this is the most colonialist (laughs) fantasy that 
pleasure is pain and pain is pleasure. And so he wants to simultaneously before when he's able to simultaneously experience he and his partner's pleasure, her orgasm and his orgasm. Now he's able to really experience pleasure from pain. And the interesting thing is that he first, um, turned, well, first he's doing it in the hospital. So lots of people, (laughs) get close to the brink of death and otherwise experience a lot of suffering because he cannot, he needs their suffering to thrive. Yeah. He's an, he's an addict at this point. He's a pain addict. He's a pain addict, but if we put it in a sort of colonialist context, it's, it's the consumption. It's, it's the eating of the other. It is. It's pain without any consequences. And and this is one of the thing. Yeah. This is one of the things that Rolo character emphasizes is that you can experience all of the, uh, I really love the way you said it, all of the body knowledge of the other person without any lasting damage, without any of the consequences. Or responsibility. His, right, there's exactly. no responsibility. I mean, when he, the scene where he, he's discovered that pain is pleasure for him and he is engaged with his partner and he is, they're doing some BDSM and he is spanking her and she is like, safe words, safe words. She is clearly disturbed. He's wanting to apologize to her, but in the process grabs her arm and begins to pinch it. Right. So this is Mm -hmm. uh, supposed to illustrate the addiction, but also Mm -hmm. yes, absolutely no consequences and absolutely no responsibility um, Mm -hmm. on his part to what is being done to this body. And he turns on himself, which is the most grotesque part of it in terms of the gore and he is literally cutting himself to bits to experience the pain but then which is also pleasure but then Rolo gives us this little thing that says no he needs fear as well that's when is you really know okay here we go colonialism here here right. we go all of the monsters of uh the grotesque uh relationship between the powerful and the powerless um, that we can think of in any colonialist context. Here we go, because he he can't get to that high unless he is also getting fear plus pain plus death equals pleasure. And that to me is what's really interesting about the difference between body knowledge, as you say, and Cog, you know, intellectual knowledge, right? Which is that there's a kind of pain that I can experience in my bodies through my sensations, but there's another kind of pain, you know, I don't know, like existential pain, right? That is like these pains that my body is experiencing, this suffering, this exhaustion, that like whatever it is, could kill me, and and that that is a whole different kind of psychological pain that we experience, you know, and what he finds is that he's addicted to the pain, but the body knowledge can't give him, right, like exactly as you say, that other side of it, which is the pain up to the point of death. And yeah, and he he craves it. Yeah, know? he does. And it is right his end and the last gory thing that he does in desperation to feel this pleasure is goes out and attacks kidnaps assaults an unhoused person 
and puts a drill to the man's forehead. So it's really about him experiencing the, the body of these other people. It's a consciousness thing, but, but the conversation is really about the body and that conversation about the body what the body is, what the body can do, what kinds of knowledge the body can have continues on. And that's that consciousness in the body, that mind body thing is what drives all of these or undergirds um, each of these episodes. Because in the next one with Jack and Carrie, like the interesting thing is we begin with two seemingly normal, quote unquote, embodied people. And then this thing happens to Carrie's body. Yeah, this this thing, by the way, is that she gets hit by a truck. Yeah, this thing <laughs> where she gets hit by a truck happens to her and body. <laughs> and then she's just... Have you not seen a more pristine body? I know it's TV, right? But she is laying, no, up, seriously. <laughs> she is laying up in this bed looking like Sleeping Beauty <laughs> at the hospital. So for listeners, it's important to note, if you haven't seen this episode, that Carrie is a white woman and that Jack is a black man. Right. right. Carrie is a white woman. Jack is a black man. They meet at a at a party. They're drinking. They kind of make a baby. <laughs> and they make an effort at their relationship, obviously. And they're, they're seemingly happy. Yeah. They're in the park. Uh, Carrie wants to get a photo of of the baby. They're in, and she backs up into the road. And this van literally comes out of nowhere. Huge kidnapper van. And knocks the fuck out of her. Next time we see her, she's in a coma in the hospital. Yeah, and this is where she, uh, Jack encounters Rolo Haynes, this like med tech middle manager guy, who says to him, oh, but, you know, we have this technology where you can basically, we can remove her consciousness from her body and put it into your mind. And he describes it as, like she's a passenger, you know, because Jack says like, oh, am I just going to have a voice inside my head? And he's like, well, it's like a it's like a passenger. And actually, I think an interesting way to think about it is like like a surrogacy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a living separate person inside your body. Right. But that is still dependent on your body to have experiences to function and to have experiences and to exist in certain kinds of ways. Yeah. But then Rolo who is gross and a jerk, right? So in the, in the, in in the, in the first story, Rolo comes to Dr. Dawson and says, Hey, we have this technology. Would you be interested in trying it? Your death rates, you know, are kind of high. You want to get your mortality rates down. So there's always a capital sort of incentive, a performance incentive for the technologies. Like Brooker puts these in there. I was rewatching Crocodile the other day. And that's one where I, I didn't realize the first couple of times I watched it. But really, the, the insurance woman is motivated to close this case today because she'll get right. a bonus. And she has a disabled child. And they're not, you know, they're working class. She's trying to get this money. So in the, the incentive for Dr. Dawson is to lower his uh, mortality rate. And the comment that's being made is, oh, it starts off innocent enough. And then people misuse it or whatever. But it's always, of course, the unintended consequence is always there. You don't, it's, it's always there. Rolo in this episode is such a symbol for how tech advances, which is, you know, he, he, he literally describes himself as like, I'll work at the top floors and on the bottom floor are the, the unwashed. 
And that and those are the people that we try this stuff out on. Yeah. Yes. The de- the medical experimentation aspect of this one is p- profound and deliberate and in your face. Mm-hmm. And so he, as this top floor guy, moves it down to the doctor to put it on the various other kinds of unwashed. And in that thing, he tells the doctor, he tells Dr. Dawson, well, you always knew there were going to be some side effects with you. Yeah. <laughs> What? I didn't know I was going to become addicted to pain like this. You know, so anyway. And then, <laughs> and then so in the, the advancement that Rolo comes to tell Jack about while he's at the pristinely preserved Carrie's bedside is, hey, this consciousness thing that you're talking about, you can be a passenger, this kind of surrogacy sort of thing. It happens through a transfer of her consciousness. Her body has to die, note, her body yeah. cannot live. So this is not just a copy of the consciousness, even though we know there are other spaces where consciousnesses are copied in this very episode, like when Clayton Lee's consciousness is copied into these souvenirs that people take, get to take after yeah. they electrocute them. So a consciousness can be copied. Rollo Haynes describes the Black Museum not as a museum of medical technology artifacts, but as a museum of crime. Crime. A crime museum. Which is, which, you know, I mean, there's, you know, it's sort of a little bit on the nose, but, you know, it's basically the episode is like medical science advances through crime. Yes. <laughs> as does tech. As does tech. Everything <laughs> advances through crime. And I think. Well, crime on the part of rich people at the expense of the unwashed. Wealthy crime, top four crime at crime at the expense of the ground, the unwashed. Yeah, that's a, it, it, that's what it is and that's what's happening. And I think that some people get lost in the individuals. Um, so Dr. Dawson as an individual or Jack as an individual. People get lost in these kinds of the actions of individuals when, again, Rolo Haynes is the top floor, is the wealthy, is the elite. And it's not about what these individual people do below that, but it's about how their choices are always already constrained by a system designed to advance on their backs. Yeah. And, I mean, it's their world. We're just playing. Yeah. It. We're just, we're just playing or, uh, uh, getting, we're just getting played in get, it, getting a drill to our head. in In this episode, uh, Carrie, inside the mind of Jack, like it's it's shot in exactly the same way as the cookies in White Christmas are shot. You know, so we're we're meant to understand that they're they're virtual beings in a virtual world of which they are prisoners. Right. Certainly, Carrie has more functions, right? Can articulate more than yes and no now that she's in Jack's head. And the first thing that we see is her being able, with her consciousness through Jack's body, to experience the sensation of eating an apple, to experience Mm -hmm. the sensation of smelling it, to experience the sensation of hugging their son again. And Mm -hmm. this brief moment is kind of like, ah, this is what it all could be about. But of course you cannot have 
a dead woman living in your head. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those episodes where, you know, you can sort of see them setting up the arc of the plot. And, you know, with the with the implied question, what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly? And then, and, and then, and then you see everything go wrong and you're like, yeah, this should have been titled, yeah, no shit. No fucking <laughs> shit. Who wants an ex living in their head? Who wants an ex? Because essentially she is an ex. She's dead. She's dead. She's dead. Yeah. But she's yeah. very much alive in Jack's head. Of course, then she's annoyed by the little things. She's annoyed yeah. by the sensation of urinating through a penis. She's annoyed if he doesn't wash his hands. She, uh, the conflict, and this is where the where race matters in an interesting way, is that um, his he gets a new neighbor. The neighbor's a black woman. They begin to hang out, and he ends up putting her on. He puts Carrie on pause. Because Carrie's kind of like, who is this bitch? Don't talk to her. Why are you looking at women? You know, this kind of thing. I don't know. Like, part of me is like, is Carrie just being a white woman? Or is this what what it would feel like if you were trapped in somebody's head? I do think that there is a a bit of this that is just the generic experience of moving on to a new relationship when you have an old one kind of lingering around. And, but I do have to say that I think that that, so after care, after Jack and Carrie decide to transfer Carrie's consciousness to this teddy bear, I do have to say that one of my absolute favorites. Oh my God. And almost the whole series, Black Mirror is when she like <laughs> sort of takes this teddy bear and like, Put, like slams it up against a wall, like in a stranglehold. And it's like, bitch, I'm telling you to knock it off. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is monkey going to be a nice toy? I'm just like, Oh my God. Oh and my who, God. Doesn't, who hasn't, who hasn't wanted to do that to someone's ex? You know. Who and, and I mean, this is the kind of this is the body thing again, right? This is the, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost like a, a voodoo doll or something like that in her hands. She can she can control yeah. it, but it only has a couple of it's it's a it's a metaphor. It's an archetype. It's an object made to have a particular kind of meaning, and yet it actually contains the fullness of Carrie's consciousness which has in this teddy bear, right, been reduced to monkey loves you, which is kind of like a yes, or monkey needs a hug, which is kind of like a no or I'm sad. In the actual episode, uh, Rollo Haynes tells Nish as she's walking through the museum and as she sees this teddy bear, she's like, what is this? You know, he tells her that it eventually became illegal to to transfer a human consciousness to something like that, like something like a a non-human object. But it also became illegal to kill it. Yes. To destroy it. She's in that bear uh, in perpetuity because, as you point out, it's unethical for her to be in the bear, but it's also unethical for her consciousness to be destroyed. And this this is going back to this idea of consciousness does it have power? Does it have rights? 
Once once it's removed from its host body, yeah. From its original body, does it have rights in this way? And and clearly in this universe, it does. And this is actually, I mean, you know, whatever. You know, these are my nightmares. Like, my nightmares are these technologies are going to become possible and our laws are going to still be being made by Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, you know, octogenarians who don't understand technology. And we're going to find ourselves in this situation you know, where we've got objects that have transferred consciousnesses in them and we can't kill them. We can't, you know, amend them or whatever. So yeah, no, seriously, because in this case, Carrie cannot articulate what she wants. Right. She can only she can only say I need a hug or or, or I love you. Or I love you, yeah, which is supposed to be yes or no. But there's really no dynamic conversation that Carrie can have about what to do about her consciousness, about whether or not she wants to cease to exist. She might want to know, is there another way that can my consciousness be put somewhere else? I just don't want to be in this fucking bear anymore. And then the idea that five emotions is good, but not two. Right, oh, I forgot about that, yeah. Illegal to put something into something that has feelings fewer than five emotions but how is five emotions really you know that was 100% Nancy Pelosi's amendment yeah. <laughs> 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 ah, you can transfer this consciousness but it's, it's absolutely that is, that is a Democrat party of America's solution it is a liberal amendment for sure oh my goodness yeah. that, that was definitely the liberal amendment yeah wow you're listening to black mirror reflections if you like what you hear and if you're hearing what you like consider donating to us at patreon.com backslash black mirror reflections that's patreon.com backslash black mirror reflections and now back to our conversation I think this is a good time to kind of move to the niche story. So at the end of the museum, the kind of prize exhibit of the museum is Clayton Lee, who we know, we well, we later find out is Nish's father, but who was accused of murdering a journalist. It was apparently a big story. We kind of see it sort of hinted at throughout the episode. But Clayton claims that he's innocent It appears that the trial, you know, there was a lot of funny business in the trial, which I know listeners will be shocked to learn. And while Clayton is incarcerated, Rollo Haynes comes to him and says, God forbid you get sent to the chair. But if you do, uh, we've got this thing that we can do, which would allow us to basically take your consciousness and it would belong to us. We could put it and do with it whatever we want, but that your family would be handsomely compensated for it. Mm-hmm. And Rolo tells this story to Nish. Now, remember, Nish is Clayton's daughter. He tells the story to Nish and tells Nish that the family, you know, was basically compensated for this and all of these sorts of things. Although we, of course, later find out that they weren't. But we see a scene in which uh, Clayton is talking to his wife. And, you know, his wife is like, don't do this. It's your soul. And uh, and he's like, oh, if there is even such a thing as a soul. But it doesn't matter because, you know, we're going to get the pardon. And they kind of move on from the from the conversation. But if he doesn't get the pardon, he says, y'all will be paid. Right, right. It seems clear that they're not paid. No, yeah. no. Rolo 
Rolo Haynes ain't paid, never paid nobody nothing for nothing. And that and none of and none of Rolo's people, I mean, none of Clayton's people are paid either. So no, Rolo yeah. Haynes is not paying nobody for nothing. And okay. <laughs> yeah, he's that, that's that's just simply if if Rolo Haynes is the top floor, you know, like we know today that the vaccine that we will get for COVID eventually is made possible by Henrietta Lacks's cells. A hundred percent. Like yeah. we, we know that we know these advances are made possible and we know that whatever they say, people have not, her family has not been compensated in a meaningful way. And so this part of the story of the frame story is interesting because usually uh, a frame story keeps the, the, the main narrative narrator continues in the white Christmas frame, the listener does become a narrator, but there's not a lot of kind of back and forth. Nish's role as a narrator in this last bit is to challenge the assumptions of Rollo Haynes' story, which is what we are all being invited to do, to challenge the assumptions of the wealthy, to challenge the assumptions, the story that they tell. And so she lets Rollo Haynes kind of tell the story and she asks Ask some questions that we know she knows the answer to, and they're kind of mm-hmm. innocent at first. And then there begins like to be an argument. He says he was guilty, and she says, "Well, what about the the DNA tampering?" And he says, "No, he he did it. He was absolutely guilty." And this kind of thing here, this lack of doubt in this thing in in this moment is such an indicative thing about the lack of doubt that many portions of the population have when it comes to the guilt of a black person. Like he literally says the thing that many people think without a doubt he was guilty. It's also a kind of certainty that is built into the workings of not only medical science, but well, all science. I mean, technological science, you know, this idea that, we know for sure. And, you know, and of course, we're going to, you know, read the retraction in the scientific journals in a couple of years. You know, and they're going to be like, well, no, actually, you need five emotions. We were wrong about that. But in that moment, they are 100 percent sure and they can sort of put this forward with absolute certainty. And what, you know, I totally agree with you. Like what this episode shows is who's suffers from that su- certainty. Who, who suffers from this narrative of certainty? Because these right, are like, yeah. we, we, we don't know what Rollo Haynes really believes. He's kind of, he's an immoral figure, but he's kind of got a capitalist amorality to him as well. But it doesn't matter because this is the story that's being pushed. Yeah, so Nish is pushing back and challenging him. Meanwhile, the plot twist in all of this is that Nish has... Um, disabled the air conditioner. She has hacked the digital AC and it's very hot in this desert space um, in the museum. And along the way, she has offered Rolo Haynes, who is, is sweating and coughing, some water and that water is poisoned. And so by the time... <laughs> so by the time the poison bottled water is taking its effect to the point where Rolo Haynes can no longer narrate because he cannot speak, then Nish finishes the story and 
tells a counter narrative that is like the true story here. Here's the other story. And it's interesting because the entire time she's been pretending to be British, Nish is played by uh, Letitia Wright, who is uh, Shuri in Black Panther. She's, she's Guyanese, she's British. Um, so she's speaking with the British accent throughout. And then later when, when, the, when she reveals herself, the big reveal is that she has an American accent. And <laughs> my thing was, wow, that such as, such a funny kind of small plot point it's like did you think that Rolo Haynes was gonna suspect that you were Clayton Lee's daughter if you had an American accent but anyway I know the Britishness created a distance in a way that allowed Rolo Haynes to speak in such a way that maybe maybe he would not have spoken to black Americans in that way and also Nish reveals that there have been lots of protests of Clayton Lee's uh, sentence to death and of his execution and of the museum that black Americans ostensibly have participated in and so this kind of sets up the ability for Nish to tell the story, which she says is that my father was wrongly convicted. You took his consciousness without really actually saying what was going to be done. You embodied him with this in this hologram that can be executed infinitely. You organized this spectacle and you charged people money to come see it. And many people came to pull the lever. And each time we are subjected to Clayton Lee's murder and Clayton Lee is also subjected in this holographic form to his own murder over and over and over again. And incidentally, they show the actual quote unquote execution. Yeah. And it's important that he's a hologram because he's a fully sentient consciousness in the form of a hologram so so although he doesn't have a body he has a consciousness that can still experience pleasure and pain and fear and and loneliness and desperation and all of those sorts of things but because he's a hologram they can do it over and over and over and over they can do it over and over again and clayton lee uh in in the in the sense of outside so zooming outside of the episode right clayton lee is to represent the over and over and over executions of many different black men and black people or many different people period and the sort of spectacle of that i want to ask you about the spectacle of it because we see that this you know museum has been set up for people to you know, go through the museum, but ultimately to do this, to, you know, this is the, this is the end, the final exhibit of the museum. You get to pull the lever on the electric chair on Clayton Lee. And when Rollo Haynes is retelling the story, it's obviously sort of playing through people doing this. And you see that all the people who visit the museum are white people. There's like one Asian guy, but of course we're supposed to read him as white as well. Right. So, I mean, I wanted, you know, just kind of hear you comment on how you think this episode deals with black suffering as white spectacle. Yeah, I mean, the museum in and of itself 
is a kind of black suffering if we're thinking of black in the British sense of this sort of darkness uh, alternative, like the poor, right? So the whole museum is doing this. But then when we think about black as a group of racialized people, what happens at the end of the museum trip is the pleasure. So going back to Dr. Dawson, there's a tremendous amount of pleasure derived from inflicting pain. And it's it's racialized, right? And it reminded me, when I first watched it, it reminded me of kind of all of the stories of grotesquerie uh, in enslavement, like the what slave masters would do to enslaved Africans, like the there had to be right an intense amount of libidinal uh, activation and pleasure in the metting out of pain. I think that in this show, the spectacle of it, in general, we are supposed to be critical of the spectacle, right? This is what white bear is about in some ways, which is also about punishment and spectacle and all these other kinds of things. But here it's giving us a kind of strict these people derive pleasure from these people's pain and it is racialized. So here's all this other pain where people were deriving pleasure, but it wasn't necessarily racialized. Now here it is racialized and in this specifically contentious death penalty context. There is this moment though, where when he's telling the story of, you know, again, mostly white people who come into the museum to experience the pleasure of putting Clayton Lee to death again. He says that, you know, at first it was everyone. It was, you know, there were buses of tourists and families and everyone did it. And then there's this kind of cultural moment of wokeness where it becomes not okay to do this. And that's when the museum's business starts to, you know, diminish. And then after that, the only people who come, even he describes as perverts. Right. It was always perverse all along. This is this is like, first everybody was going to the lynching, and now only some people are going. But still, the benefits, you've already sort of reaped that that benefit. It's it's kind of it's like frothing at the mouth racism is a perversion, but polite racism is you know or 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 we should say we should say uh medical science and technological development right. <laughs> you know, and and the justice system yeah those are not perversions because honestly it's not the white supremacist sickos or the rich guys with the hard on for power or i think nish nish used the term race race hating guys and it's like what, what this not precise language like what are we actually talking about because it doesn't matter how long the spectacle goes on if one person the the spectacle the existence of it itself is perverse if one person comes and pulls the crank is and never does it again it is absolutely perverse as is the death penalty itself that's where my my bones uh, that I have to pick with the episode are, are, are most prominent because I'm just like, because also the other thing that's happening there is Nish is in some ways invalidating the power of protest. And so that it's protest that has gotten some attention to 
her father's case. But then people move on to something else as if protest itself is a spectacle. And as if the people who are protesting, which are overwhelmingly black people and brown people, as if they are disinterested. And we see this narrative on social media all the time. Oh, y'all don't care about, oh, y'all forgot about. No one forgot. Everyone is traumatized. So again, it's kind of these crowds become a disembodied, um, roving, roaming thing. And so the crowd's consciousness, the protest consciousness can be transferred to this. Now we're on this other subject. Now we're on this other, as Nish says, viral, the next viral miscarriage of justice. And so, yeah, the, that, that part of the, of the narrative to me is in some ways invalidating some of the really powerful interventions that the episode is making around class and technology in the earlier parts of it. However, what we're supposed to understand is the trauma of this spectacle on one family as well. Because Nisha's mother takes her life after coming to see Clayton and he's been electrocuted so much that he is kind of wandering around aimlessly in the cell. I mean, this is a person that the sort of agency issue here is interesting because this is a person who is locked in a cell who has more ability to move his body around than the implanted consciousness of Carrie. However, at any given moment, he is taken from sort of standing up in his cell to immediately when somebody pulls that crank, he's, he's the chair appears. The chair isn't always there. The chair appears when someone comes to pull the crank. So he could be doing something else in, in his cell. The little freedom that he has in the, the chair appears. Yeah, but he's, he's a totally broken human being. I mean, he is, if this were a character in a story that didn't have all of the fancy tech bells and whistles we would describe as a a character without a soul. I want to go back to something you said like at the very beginning when you described the kind of colonialist echoes in the story that we see both with Rollo Haynes and with Dawson and with Carrie, of trying to own and occupy another consciousness, another body, manipulate it to one's own ends and things like that. And I want to ask you if you think that there's a different kind of relationship to, let's call them ghosts, bodiless consciousnesses, right? Um, Or consciousnesses that have been removed from their original host bodies. Um, And obviously we can talk about this in a lot of ways in terms of like, memories and you know inspirations but in this episode they're literal people inside of your head or you know that that are being manipulated because as you just said um what we see in the end of the episode is that we learn that nisha's mother committed suicide after clayton lee's death and nisha's mother exists in nisha's head in the exact same way as Carrie existed in Jack's head. But I think that we're meant to understand a whole different kind of relationship to this relationship with ghosts. It's a different kind of haunting that happens here. And I know that, like, actually haunting has a pride of place in your own writing. And so I'm, I'm really interested to hear you talk about that. So a couple of things. So first, we know that Carrie lives in Jack. And then before Nish leaves, she puts 
as her ultimate revenge, she puts Rolo Haynes's consciousness into her father and kills her father's consciousness but Rolo Haynes consciousness lives on in a souvenir that she takes and then we learn that um, uh, Nisha's mother has been along for the ride as it were as a passenger literally in her head and in this cool ass car that Nisha's been driving while listening to Dionne Warwick's always something there to remind me <laughs> uh, I wanted to get to Aunt Dionne okay let's, later we're going to get to Aunt Dionne but go back but I feel like they go together, right? Um, totally. I feel like, so one of the things I thought about this episode uh, when I first saw it was, I was like, oh, this is how uh, white people are trying to understand what is an already pre-existing ancestral technology, which is your ancestors will live in your head and talk to you. Like in in the uh, Yoruba tradition, there's this idea of the Ori, which is kind of your higher self. And they say it lives in your head. And there's also... Of course, if we think about the implications of medicine in the misdiagnoses of all kinds of ranges of um, psychiatric uh, illnesses or even trying to diagnose and call a thing a thing, right? We, it's it's all ableist and normalizing because you say schizophrenia, I say this person talks to angels. You know, there are different levels of moving between or being between this kind of embodied state where you are and this part of you that also lives in a spirit realm. And then there are the spirits, there are the ghosts, there are the people who used to have a body and they don't have a body anymore. And that absence of a body then leads to them being in all kinds of things. Maybe they are in a teddy bear and you have to intuit from what the teddy bear is saying. Maybe Mm -hmm. they are, maybe they live in a candle. Maybe they live in objects they left behind, but there's always something there to remind me. It's all about an ancestral altar to me. And in the technology aspect of it, it's like, oh, this person sits and lives in your head, but they're not a prisoner. As you point out, their relationship is very different. Nish and her mom's relationship is very different. I don't know if Nish puts her mom on pause, um, or I don't know if Nisha's mom just knows like, oh, Nisha's doing something that I, you know, I'm going to take a nap, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or whatever, you know, your ancestors aren't like standing in the room with their hands on the, on, on their hips while you have sex. I don't know, Zandria. That's because they're not in your head. Cause you know, Nisha's mom is like, girl, don't do that. <laughs> yes. Oh, of course. Of course. Her mom is like, girl, don't do that. Of course. Her mom is like, girl, don't do that. But there's also kind of this other way in which I feel like the relationship yeah. is completely different the relationship there is completely different than what we would experience or what we saw being experienced in the relationship between Carrie and Jack and of course the relationship between Rolo and Clayton and this may be like too big of a question to answer but you're the, exactly the big of a person to answer it it's like I mean how would you describe that like what is that relationship I mean is it honor is it uh, I mean, it is love. It is remembrance, but there's something else there. You know, that relationship between 
uh, descendants and ancestors that is that is spiritual and not technological and it's not medical it's not you know um it's not even primarily biological it's primarily a spiritual yeah what like how would you describe that we always have to push back against the idea of what is and is not dead I remember when my daughter's father died and he killed himself and I felt that he did not like transition over. I didn't know anything about any of this. I was raised in a like regular black Southern Christian household, all this kind of stuff. I didn't know nothing about this spirits and this and that. Like, and also I was like a tiny scientist. I was always looking for empirical evidence of things. Like I was like rational logic, whatever. And then this thing happened and I couldn't explain. I was like, there's lights going on in and out my house. I know I'm not crazy. The stereo's being turned on. I know I'm not crazy. I don't know what to do with this. And I remember telling my mother these things that were happening. She would quote this verse, which is completely out of context. She would quote this verse, the dead know nothing, which is to say that if you do not have a body, you do not have a consciousness and therefore you cannot know anything. But of course, all these episodes are really playing with that idea of what can a consciousness continue to know and do outside of a body. And I was like, the dead know everything but they know but they know it only through the living right only in as much as they're remembered and they're kept alive no they know things they know things that we don't know because they can talk to people that we can't talk to they know all the other dead they can go to a party and have to have a party with them okay i'm gonna this is a legitimate question do you when you say that do you like literally believe that that's literally true that is literally no that is literally true that is literally true. That I, if you would have asked me, you know, 15 years ago, I would have said that's absurd. Or more than 15 years ago. Now, if you asked me 20 years ago, I would have said that's absurd. But it's true. And this what okay. what's happening in this in, in at the end is that's an ancestral technology of having an ancestor or a spirit mm-hmm. or an angel or whatever to live in your head and tell you a thing. Like I really very much would like to believe the dead just just kind of go on and that what we do is create memories and and love and 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 you know we have ancestral reverence practices but it's really about a memory process or or, or production of a kind of memory rather than something that actually has an actual effect on this world because then we have to start thinking about time. Does, yeah. time, does time work like this? Then we have yeah. to start thinking about being. What is being? Then we have to start thinking about man, th- that's when the philosophy... Oh, now, now you're in my wheelhouse. Let's talk about time. That's, right? that's <laughs> when the philosophical questions come in. That's when the philosophical so, questions come in. We're trying to... And there's this piece by this guy who is um, a sociologist of religion. What is his name? Omar is his first name. He used to be at University of Chicago. He may still be there. But he has this piece called Beyond Mysterium Tremendum. And it's about where he's trying to kind of how do you capture what's going on when somebody gets the Holy Ghost? Or how do you mm-hmm. capture like the 
the spirit that people say that they feel like in church services or whatever. How do you cap, mm-hmm. how do you talk about that? How do you capture that? And that's certainly he's an ethnographer. That's an ethnographer's question. That's an empirical question. That's a scientific question, but it's also a philosophical question about how do we um, know the world that we can perceive in our traditional ways around us, and how do we activate other kinds of perception, like a body knowledge, for instance, or uh, some kind of crown chakra, higher knowledge. Like, I don't know what you want to call it, but how do we activate these other kinds of knowledges and integrate them together to have a different understanding of the world? And maybe this is something that will guide us to be kind of better people <laughs> as we are making decisions about what kinds of technologies to, uh, to have and to introduce and so forth. So do you think that Nish's act was an act of revenge or an act of love or an act of remembrance? It's both. It's all of the above. So it's okay. It's revenge uh, in a way on the system. Right. If Rolo Haynes is representative of the system, let us reverse what the system has done to us. And I don't you know, I don't necessarily agree in that particular kind of way with the reversal, but that's what she's doing here. Let's reverse what the system has done to us. See how you like it. Again, we get to see Rolo Haynes in the jumpsuit, in the consciousness passenger jumpsuit. And he cannot articulate anything because his body, the the holographic body that he's inhabiting is one that he himself has rendered unable to speak. So it's kind of like this, what is this sort of dialectical relationship? What what do we owe to each other? Like if you put the wealthy into the head, into the consciousness of a broken body, which our labor, if we're looking, if we're thinking about our labor force right now, like that's what neoliberalism is. Neoliberalism is, okay, let's not break this body too much. Cause we, we needed to keep, yeah. we needed to keep doing stuff. What if, yeah. what if we raised all the tides by not breaking this body? Okay. So there's, there's that aspect of it. It is a mercy. It's mercy for her father. It is remembrance for her father. It is mercy for her mother too, because her mother's death is very much tied up with her father's death and re-death and spectacle and all of that. So it's mercy. And she gets to watch, right? We know at the end that she's been watching the whole time. She gets to see and experience the whole time, the whole thing. And yeah, there's always something there to remind you. Always something there to remind you, to remind her. And then the love, the love is the destruction of this tower that is the Black Museum. This, This tower doesn't work. This tower is built on faulty assumptions. This tower is built on violence. This, let's destroy it. And it burns. Boom. <laughs> and she's off. And, she's, and she drives off. At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. So as you know, at the end of every episode, I ask my guests the same three questions. So I'm going to ask them to you all in a row here, and then you can answer them 
in a row. So the first question is, what is the lesson of the Black Museum? Second is, what about this episode worries or concerns or scares you the most? And third is, on a scale of one to ten, with with zero being a nightmarish dystopia and ten being a perfect utopia, where does this episode fall? Okay, go. So the lesson of Black Museum is to think deeply about all of the technologies that organize our relationships to one another, that organize our consciousness, and to think about the ways in which technology impedes our body knowledge. What worries me about what comes up in Black Museum, and is actually related to the dystopia question, what worries me is the profound accuracy and consciousness of what is happening in terms of class and race from the top to the bottom. That's what worries me. And if we think about the end of 15 million merits, when the protagonist is kind of the the talking head of dissent, I wonder how, or what worries me is our knowledge of these circumstances and these hierarchies and these power dynamics and their serious consequences and their violences and what we are supposed to do with them. Yes, the answer is, as Nish gives us, to burn it all down. But how do we get, how do we get through the museum, I guess, is what worries me, um, what worries me the most. And then I think that as our homegirl, our fellow homegirl, Jamie Hatley, the Memphis writer, would say, uh, we're, we're in the dystopian now. Anyway, I think that nightmares dystopia zero is where we are. If we think about this episode as science versus people mm-hmm. or science without humanities versus humanities people screaming, obviously we need to not do this. This is, this is, I live this nightmare. I live this nightmare. Yeah. I don't have to have a drill to my head to live this nightmare. I live in a nightmarish dystopia where science is fact when we know is biased and we're training up more and more and more generations of people to do the same thing as death happens all around us as a result of this training and it's on purpose. Yeah, so to me, we, we're at the zero for a Black Museum and it would be dystopian now, as Jamie Hadley would say, nightmarish, dystopian present is, is where we are. Yeah, I mean, I do sometimes, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a lot more tech optimistic than you are, but I do sometimes think, as many people have thought this year, that we're living in a Black Mirror episode. And it's one of those episodes where, you know, we're being push to ask what could possibly go wrong when already we're like, no shit, we know what's going to go wrong. That's why I mean, I've I've been, I've been kind of just sipping tea and and praying because it's like, yeah, Yeah. no, they were like super COVID. I was like, "Mm, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, Sandria, it's so good to talk to you again. I like after this uh, Black Mirror thing finishes, I think I'm going to have a, I'm going to start a different sort of more broad podcast, but I definitely want you back Yes, please, please give us these, this content. We need it. Please give it. All right. And you, and Porch Drinks next week right holler poor strings <laughs> all right thanks so much bye thank you lee
You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts. Mm-hmm.